0: Welcome everyone to the Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. And on this week's episode, we welcome Dr. Lori Desetel. She is a assistant professor at Butler University and um, she's basically one of the foremost experts on the field of educational neuroscience, trauma, adversity, which um, as we all know, is something that we're all dealing with right now. Uh, this is a really interesting conversation. We, we spend time talking about how, you know, just as soon as recent as 10 years ago, um, her field and focus on neuroscience, uh, to some may have been deemed as heresy. And now it seems to be one of the most f- uh front issues that we're talking about right now. Uh, we dive into her latest book, um, Connections Over Compliance, Rewiring Our Perceptions of Discipline. And that conversation is fa- fascinating to think about how we view discipline or how at least the education system has viewed discipline for a long time. And what are some better ways to actually, paradigms to have on discipline. Um, This conversation is super fascinating. We dive a little bit into one of her books that was uh, talking about the education system as a whole from rethinking it as a machine, kind of conveyor belt uh, entity to uh, a living, breathing system. Uh, I know this sounds kind of abstract, but we dive into the specifics of that. This conversation is incredibly fascinating. If you're someone who geeks out on neuroscience, this is a great conversation. If you're someone who thinks about uh, disciplining kids uh, and how to connect with kids in a better way. So not just discipline uh, for compliance as we talk about, but discipline uh, for connection and really just focus on making those real connections. Um, Dr. Destel is uh, so thoughtful, so humble. Um, If you're someone who is geeking out at at it, we didn't talk about this in the podcast or the interview, but if you're someone who kind of geeks out on this topic, she has a um, annual educational neuroscience symposium that you should definitely check out. And she also has a graduate certification through Butler University that you should uh, look into. Um, she's an amazing woman. This is a great conversation. Um, I got nothing else to say, but enjoy. It. Sorry for rambling. This is just a I had a great time talking to her. So I know you will enjoy it as well. Thanks for listening. Okay, so yeah. Dr. Destetel, thank you so much for joining us. I know that you asked me to call you Lori, uh, given your extensive research and impact in the field of education. I'm gonna say that's gonna be tough for me, but I'm gonna try to do it. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thank you, Destin, for having me. And, and, you know, we're all just doing the work that we need to
0: do right now. So, well, yeah. Um, I appreciate you making time. First question we ask every guest is who are you and what do you love about what you do? Mm.
1: So I love that question and I think first and foremost, I am a learner. That is who I am. I love to learn. And this work has evolved over the past probably 10 to 12 years into what I knew in my gut and what I felt instinctively into what is absolutely required today. And um, so I work at Butler Um, I teach in the College of Education, Butler University. And um, this year I'm in the graduate program, not teaching undergrad right now. But um, I also, what I love about what I do is that I'm back in the classroom. And when I was at Marion University seven years ago, I knew that I had lost touch. And um, it wasn't enough for me to go in to observe first and second year Teach for America teachers. Actually, I was, um, you know, I was observing at Arlington High School, which is, was a large high school here. And um, and it was the year that the state took over five schools, one in Gary, Indiana, and four in Indianapolis. And, um, and so I left there knowing that um, if I if I were really going to continue this work to, to the, into the depths that I needed to, because we were seeing significant behavioral challenges from some children and adolescents that I knew were carrying in pain, and, and yet we were, we were punishing them in such punitive ways, and it just broke my heart. Um, and so I went back into the classroom, and I've been, this is my eighth year. And so I go into the classroom two days a week and I am co-teaching. This year I'm at Belzer uh, Middle School with seventh grade. And um, it's a large middle school here in Lawrence Township in Indianapolis, 1200 students in seventh and eighth grade. And we have great moments and we have horrific ones and nothing magical happens when I go in there, but I'm learning from my Voyager team and, and then I'm traveling all across the world too right now. Um, since COVID has lifted, I was doing a lot of virtual, but I'm just taking this work, I'm taking what I'm learning um, to educators and we are co-regulating one another through the neurosciences. That's that was awesome. a long,
0: long answer. No, I, I think for, for me, uh, when did you become fascinated with neuroscience and its impact on adults and kids in education?
1: So it was almost an intuitive um, kind of facet of my learning, and I was um, in my doctoral work. I it was I was really looking at Martin Seligman's work in positive psychology, and um, and then I was looking at Joe Dispenza, Dr. Joe Dispenza's work, and he's kind of an outlier, um, you know, in in the work of neuroplasticity. And then um, from that, I I really began to look at how the brain learns and engages, and my mentor was Dr. Judy Willis, who is a former neurologist out of Santa Barbara. And um, and she literally mentored me while I was at Marion University. And um, she, I, I, I think my work took off because she was so generous with her time and energy and passion, and she knew of mine. So I think it was, um, you know, we were really looking at how the brain learns 10 to 12 years ago, and looking at behavior, but but we weren't, you know, I, I wasn't familiar with adverse childhood experiences um, until a couple of years later. And then that really,
0: uh, that turned, that shifted everything. Well, when yeah. we were talking earlier, um, we, I, you know, I said, it's, it's great to see that neuroscience is kind of on the forefront of so much now in education. Um, it wasn't always that way is what you said. I think you mm-hmm. used a pretty strong word to say when you're really exploring this kind It might've been heresy. Um, can you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about your journey from, you know, following your gut to being at a, a, you know, perceived heresy, I guess, in education to on the forefront of what is probably one of the most impactful places in education now? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I appreciate that question. I don't think I've ever answered this in an interview, so I'm really happy to do that, Um, but it's, I'm being vulnerable. Um, Probably, I would say in 2010, 2009, when I began to really delve into Dr. Willis's work and to really look at um, how neuroscience impacts learning and engagement and behavior, I began to look at we call this focused attention practices. The world calls it meditation. I began to introduce meditation to my graduate students at Marion University. And I think I rocked their world because they came in just focused on the academia part of it. And and so my evaluations as a professor just were in the toilet for about a year and a half. I mean, I would come home from class in tears because I knew in my gut that this work was um, moving in this direction and that we had to look at the nervous system um, before we could address behaviors. And kids who are rough, as we say in our house, don't learn. Mm -hmm. And it takes way more than one effective teacher um, and it, it, it really is, uh, discipline is not about students. Discipline is about the adults. And, and I knew that intuitively, but it was really resisted. And it was a really hard time. And I share, I've shared that with my students now, that, um, you know, it was a long, long fought battle, really. And I just, I thought, am I crazy? Um, and I kept talking to Dr. Willis and, um, and I kept learning. I went back to Martin Seligman's work, and then I was introduced to Dr. Bruce Perry's work about nine years ago. And, and then I looked at Alan Shore's work on brain development and looked at Linda Chapman's work. I mean, it all was coming together. And so I knew that it had such relevance for educators because we know that education requires state regulation. And, and we didn't know that, I think we intuited it, but we didn't know that it wasn't well-researched 10, 12 years ago. So that's why I went back into the schools too,
0: to start implementing this work. What was the, so you, that makes total sense, but what, what was the pushback that you're receiving then of, uh, cause I feel like, and again, now it seems to be so, it feels common sense in a lot of places. What was the pushback, you know, 10 years ago? Well,
1: I think I think 10 years ago, you know, we were in that zero tolerance policy protocol around the country. So, you know, we and that's and, and really that was that was where my work shifted from not just looking at engagement in academics, but really looking at what's beneath the behaviors of our children. Because when I was at Arlington High School in Indianapolis, I would go in and observe and kids 7th and 8th graders were just roughhousing you know they were shoving each other not not aggressively but they were horse playing that's what we call it and 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 they would get suspended i mean it was this it was wild actually and i and i just and then i saw adults escalate kids and 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 it was just it was almost like there were these power struggles and conflict cycles that were really unintentionally escalating everybody. And and it was just, um, it was just one what it was just, that's how it's gonna be. If you do this, this, or this, you're out. And so- these kids were being suspended to nowhere. They were being expelled to
0: nowhere. Yeah, we had at the school I was teaching at, um, and it's not to dishonor anybody there, but one of the policies that always threw me off was the 10 days. I mean, if you were caught in a hall sweep or if you were caught doing something that seemed to be like uh, a normal thing that a kid in high school might might make a poor decision and mess around, they're suspended for 10 days. And to your point, there was 10 days to nowhere. And so it always confused me how that helped. Um, one of the things that I got accused of, and I'm wondering if this is uh, you, you the same way, is uh, if you did anything else besides endorse that, you were kind of seen as soft or not setting clear boundaries for kids. Is that some of the feedback or pushback that you got early on?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I think that's absolutely a part of it. And I also feel that somehow as this, the social and emotional aspects of education, um, we started to see the significance of, of that. Um, it was somehow associated with kind of this warm, fuzzy, extra, kind of a, like a metaphysical, if that makes sense, just it wasn't in. And, and, now, and now I understand, you know, looking at in the Western part of the world, we are very disembodied. And what I mean by that, you know, in education, specifically education, we are cognitive heavy is the word I like to use. We're language heavy. Our secondary teachers in our, and true for elementary, in our pre-service years we're taught content you know we're taught curriculum we become content experts you know we are curriculum developers and and we you know we just there was never a focus you know it's almost like our heads go one way and our bodies go the other way and when you look at the research now from Gabor Mate and Peter Levine and Bruce Perry too and, and um, Dr. Stephen Porges who I'm working closely with right now um, we hold trauma in our bodies, and so traditionally, growing up, kids and adults just—we we we just are cognitive thinking creatures who might feel later on. But what we know is that we're wired. We literally, the brain develops to sense and feel the world, and we have to feel safe, and we have to feel felt, or we don't learn. Hmm. And and that's. You know, this was really distorted in in those
0: zero tolerance policy punitive years. Yeah, I think, I mean, so I want to, uh, one thing I do find fascinating, and I've, I've not read all your books deeply, but enough to, I think, be dangerous in this conversation, especially mm-hmm. since my friend endorsed you so much coming into this, I felt like I had to uh, go as deep as I possibly could. Um, your first book you wrote, uh, I think it was like two thousand. 12-ish. Um, so called how may I serve you, right? It was like the five powerful words that were, how may I serve you? you that was your first book, right? So you were trying to say something. Uh, wh- the thing that connected with me is I've always believed that if I think about the educators that i met in my life, it was the people who, how they made me feel. It was never about like the grade I got. Can you tell me what your focus was with that first book and what, what you learned and what you hoped educators would take away from that?
1: So the first book really was, I was going through a very challenging time as a mom Mm -hmm. and um, at that time, and I've shared this in my presentations and talks and I share about it in the book. And our oldest son was struggling with significant anxiety. And, but for us as, you know, when someone in your home is struggling, the whole family feels it. And, and so we were, you know, as parents and, and, you know, trying to always, um, just do the best that we can. And, and, and just to understand what was underneath Andrew's behaviors as he entered high school was, it was just such a hard time. And, um, I didn't have a title for the book and I received an email from his Spanish high school, Spanish teacher, Brandon Pickett, who I write about in the book. And, um, It was a Monday afternoon, very dreary. I remember sitting at Marion in my basement office and I opened, I was dreading opening up the email, but when I opened it up, um, Dr. Brandon Pickett, um, the email read, Dr. Desatel, Andrew had a great class period. He was walking around helping the other students. Um, He finished his project and then he said at the very end please let me know how i may serve you in the days and weeks to come and i read that probably 3 times with tears rolling down my face and and i thought to myself this teacher has brought back life into our family and and gave andrew life and i shared the email with andrew and um and it was just so hopeful because somebody you know, outside of our family was able to value Andrew and to see him and to feel him and to hear him. And he worked so hard for Brandon Pickett, got an A in Spanish. I say in the book, I think he got Ds and Fs and everything else. But um, so that became the title of the book because I realized that education is a vocation and, and it's servant leadership. And, and then the resiliency research Started to blossom, and and then we looked at the resiliency research, which is fifty years old, and we know that children and adolescents who are struggling emotionally, who may come from significant adversity or toxic levels of stress, one emotionally available, predictable, consistent relationship can over can truly over help that child overcome those obstacles, and most. Students, most children and adolescents, they wobble, they don't break. You know, we're our nervous system is built to wobble, and our nervous system knows how to get home. It's just that we don't often listen to what our bodies are telling us.
0: You go from that kind of profound thought to uh, one that I'm really interested in when you when you talked about breaking down your school system, so your second book, which you co authored with uh. Uh, what's the gentleman's name? I can't Michael know. McKnight. Michael McKnight. So, and you mm-hmm. focused on, um, it's called Unwritten, the story of a living system. And what I really appreciated about it is it spoke to, to my heart and my experiences of a school turnaround and working with our, our media schools uh, of feeling like we're treating like our schools like a machine, right? Like where mm-hmm. it's part of a, a, a conveyor belt, essentially. And you're talking, you're trying to claim it's a living system. Can you explain uh, what your main thesis was in the book?
1: So I think with Unwritten, it's you pretty much summed it up. I mean, we, we know that, you know, human beings have plasticity. Our nervous systems have plasticity. Okay. And, and yet we box in, we label, we give classifications, we give rulings, we label everything. And we move kids through grade levels. And then, you know, and then we retain them. And then we, you know, we, we just... It, it is like a machine. And so Michael and I wrote that book and we, we thought the educator is a living person and children are you know, collectively creating this, this beautiful, complex, moving and feeling and sensing um, organism in our schools. And yet we're not teaching to their strengths and passions and to their identities and to their cultures and their values. And it was, I, to, to be honest with you, I think that's my favorite book of all four. Yeah, I, I really do. I, I hope it comes. I mean, I hope it comes back. I mean, I, that's my thing. Fa- I love Michael and I loved writing that
0: book together. Yeah. So when I I'm sure you guys have both gone on, like done plenty of uh, speaking engagements on this or, you know, create uh, talks in depth. I, I wonder what are the biggest ahas that you've Felt from educators as they've engaged in that content or engaged in that book with you as like the key takeaways that have really shaped them.
1: From unwritten, you mean from unwritten the story? Yeah. So um, I just feel like it was it was the one teacher said to us it was balm to her soul. It was soothing to the soul um, because you know it is we we love stories. Human beings are all about stories. Our brain and nervous systems, we predict experiences based on experiences. We learn through context. So that book, I think really, um, at the sparks at the end of every chapter, we really focused on not what is black or white or wrong or good or bad, but this is who we are. And we have this amazing ability to move through life experiences, um, organically and naturally, if we're allowed to do that.
0: So that, again, like I said, of all the books that you have, including your new one, which I will get to in a second, I think your unwritten one is probably the one that connected with me the most uh, from a, mm-hmm. both head and heart level. Um, your next book was Eyes Are Never Quiet. Uh, it's about neurobiology and adversity and trauma and youth. What, what was the impetus for you wanting to write that? And what are kind of the big takeaways that people have gotten from there?
1: So I think that book really started to introduce the science beneath the behaviors because we we had played with it a little bit. I did a little bit in how may I serve you a little tiny bit and unwritten, but we really wanted to focus on the social and effective neurosciences, also looking at racism, you know, in our schools. So we started, we started to talk about that and, and we really wanted our readers educators to begin to embrace how the brain is built how it develops the importance of connection which we call touch points and that discipline is not a reaction discipline is to sit beside and and so it's a and discipline is about the adult and so we introduced that concept in eyes are never quiet and then I and then we introduced um, this new lens for discipline in Eyes Are Never Quiet, but then connections over compliance really honed in on the discipline.
0: That's what um, I was asked, so like that that experience led to our, your current book, you know, Connections Over Compliance, is that correct? Yes, absolutely. So uh, what was the, the, the impetus for you saying, we've got to write this book and share it now. I've got lots of questions I want to dive into on this one. Uh, mm-hmm. I just want people to understand kind of your, your trajectory of your heart and your research. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm really curious, rewiring the, our perception of discipline is a, is a catchy title. Like I'm picking it up and thinking, well, what, what do you assume discipline is right now? And what's, mm-hmm. the, what's the way discipline needs to be?
1: Yeah, so that I I was the interesting thing um, about rewiring um, our perceptions of discipline connections over compliance. I had to I was writing the end of the book during when everybody was like literally shutting down. So on March tenth, two thousand twenty, um, I don't think I would have had the book completed by the end of the summer had I not had that time. And so um, that book it, when I was writing it over the summer. I remember saying to my husband, I just want you to be prepared because this book is either going to be wildly accepted or it's going to be rejected because I really focused on the adult nervous system as the driver of discipline and behavior management. And actually, Connections Over Compliance was it was born from ASCD asking me to write a book about discipline for them. And that was in April 2019. And Susan, my editor at ASCD, um, and she was great. But the, it was as it was being peer reviewed, um, they could not understand why I began the book if it was about discipline with educator nervous system state. And we just couldn't find a happy medium there. So I said, goodbye, Um, I'm done. I revised it three times, but I didn't change the order of the chapters. And I thought it's time, you know I'm not gonna weigh in on ASCD. They've written 40 books on um, discipline and they're all saying the same thing. And when you look at our discipline data across the country, I don't care what district you're in, we're not disciplining a whole new group of kids every week. We have the same students in our suspensions, in our kickouts, in our expulsions, our write-ups. I mean, this is crazy. It's you know, it's just I it yeah, it, it's crazy. So I had a lot of fire um,
0: as I wrote that book. Yeah. So then, what what is it that we need to do with educators first, right? A lot of people that listen to this are you know teachers, but also we have school leaders and district leaders. I'm curious. Yeah. Uh, for the adults?
1: So, this is, you know, what, when I travel into school districts everywhere um, and people are embracing. So, Connections Over Compliance talks about the framework of applied educational neuroscience, which I developed at Butler um, with the wonderful um, guidance of my um, former dean, Dr. Ina Shelley, and my former associate dean, Deb Leckleiter. And um, I actually had written a white paper with Dan Elsner. Um, at Marion University on the four pillars that connections over compliance is about. And then then I came to Butler. So um, really what this is saying is that when I go into schools, how this looks is that when we start to shift our lens and shift how we see discipline, it begins with a calm, regulated adult. Because we know the nervous system of an adult is what can unintentionally escalate a child or co-regulate a child. So that's where we began.
0: So if, if I'm a school leader, what what are some ways that school leaders can prioritize or care for the teacher brain state?
1: We have um, what we call their it's brain and nervous system aligned practices for the adults in the building. And so we are. I am meeting for, just as an example a lot of my work in a district is with just the administrators. So we start with the administrators and, um, and we, we care for the administrators so that they can feel and experience these regulatory practices themselves. And then they are modeling these practices for staff. So I, I can share with you one, um, it's called What Are My Anchors? And I'm writing about it in my new book. I'm writing a new book. Kind, of, I've had a horrible day of writing today, but. Um,
0: so, I may have interrupted that with this call, but that's a whole
1: other thing. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm glad for the interruption. So my anchors are the things that um, that I find soothing to my nervous system. So what people anchor me? What places anchor me? What things anchor me? What times of the day anchor me? What days of the week and seasons? So we're asking administrators to gather The anchors of their staff. I'm just giving you one example. This is what Lawrence Township in Indianapolis is doing right now. And so they put them in a Google Doc. And then um, once we've gathered the anchors, so we know that, you know, uh, we've got it, you know, this so and so, you know, my English department, three of the people love lemon cough drops. They love to crunch on ice. They love a Mountain Dew, Um, you know, just, uh, you know, sucking on a butterscotch mint. Um, So we've got these like things you can do in the moment. And so administrators are providing those, um, you know, just in, in neutral times, you know, not waiting for an eruption, but saying, Hey, you know, I I bought you this, I brought down some butterscotch mints for you. Have a great morning. Or, you know, just, I mean, here's a, here's a Mountain Dew, enjoy it. Have a great morning. I'll check in with you later. So it's really creating touch points and modeling for teachers, what then teachers are
0: doing with staff.
1: I mean, doing with students.
0: Yeah. It seems to me like, you know, uh, one of the things I remember going through teacher training is, you know, if you have a student who is needs, like something on, under their desk to scratch or something to tap or something along those lines to help them focus and get some of their energy out. It seems very similar that you're suggesting we do that for the adults.
1: Oh, absolutely. A- yeah, absolutely. And, and because we've, We know that a lot of our what we know right now, the teacher fatigue and exhaustion and the chronic stress that our educators are feeling right now, it's never been like this. So, I mean, it's it's really a lot of the districts are just focusing on this first pillar um, and really looking at just, okay, this year, you know, yes, we're going to care for our kids and we're going to attend to our students needs. But our focus as a building, as a district is going to be on the adults. Because I love what Resma Menekum says from my grandmother's hands. I love this quote. He says, settled adults have settled kids um, because of contagion. And, and so, you know, this is something that we're really focusing on. And I ta- that's why the first chapter or the second chapter, the first chunk of the book is about educator
0: brain and body state. What do you say to those educators who are still thinking, yeah, I know that my staff is still burned out or, you know, on the the teetering, but we've got to take care of the kids. And so I just need you to tough it out. What do you, what do you suggest to those, because those administrators are out there. um, How do you help them recognize that they're, they've got their priorities uh, mismatched?
1: Well, I think one of the things that, again, it's an endurance event, it's a process um, building relationships with people that are resisting is so critical. Also encouraging administrators to look at their data, because when you look at your data, it tells a story. And and so that's one aspect of it. But it also is the other aspect is really looking at how the brain and nervous system develop, because when you understand that when we come into the world, we have a brain stem that is for our survival. And nothing else is wired up at that point. And so, you know, we have, there are three purposes for a brain and nervous system, um, and that is survival, emotions, and cognitions, or cognition. And so if kids aren't feeling safe and they're not feeling connected, then, I mean, again, these achievement gaps that we've talked about for 25 years are not achievement gaps. They're adversity
0: gaps. Is that, is that why you've talked about it's important for educators to understand the student brain uh, state prior to teaching content in the classroom? Because um, that's where yeah. it's missing out. Oh
1: yeah, absolutely. Because when a kid comes in rough and, and mm-hmm. something's happened at home, or something's happened in the car, on the way to school, someone, you know, there's an issue at a locker. Um, we've had more physical and verbal aggression this year at the middle school than I've ever, ever seen. Um and so when they come in they're not in the cortex. And to learn anything you've got to be functioning right here behind your eyebrows in this prefrontal cortex. And when you're not here it doesn't matter how engaging your lesson is, how great the you know the lesson plan, the curriculum, um no one cares because you don't care when you're functioning down in these midbrain, lower brain regions, you're in survival So in survival, you are in threat and protect. So you can't reason, you don't have sustained attention, you can't regulate, and it's not a choice. It is a survival
0: nervous system state. What do you say? Because I I find when I taught high school, I think through some of the uh, things I think I did well, and things I did not do well. And one of those not do well, I think for me would be, You know, if I had a kid come in, I could tell that they were definitely in a different spot. They were stressed. I would make it clear to them that I love them. I am here for them. I will figure out ways to connect. But I would always say, (laughs) uh, but I would say, um, you know, unfortunately, when you're out in the real world, they're not going to slow down enough to care where this is at. So let's fight through it now. And then we can come back. And given what you're saying, I don't know if that's the right strategy to really, help that student? How do we find that balance of, like, there is a reality that, like, if this was the real world, they're going on the job, they may not have a boss or somebody who could, who would help them regulate. Um, What's your, what's your (laughs) thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, the way that you just described how you approach that, I think, is a nice balance, because it sounds to me as if you emphasized relationship. That you prioritized connection and yet you were authentic with them and you shared with them, hey, you know, I mean, we've got to push through this and, you know, because you're not going to be with me always. And I think, I think that our students are so, and, and this is just true for human beings, but our students really know who means what they say. You know, our kids are like TSA agents at the airport. They're not, they're watching us. They're, they're looking at our presence. They're watching our eyes. They're listening to our tone. They're seeing if our head tilts, you know, because if and they're watching a flat expression or an expressive, even masks. I mean, you can, you know, we read the eyes. So I, I feel like your question is, there's a nice, I think there's a happy medium, but you know, kids will work for people they like yep. and, and, um, and kids will respect people who respect them.
0: Do you so, ever push yeah. back on, again, it's a little bit of a repeat of an earlier question, but as you're thinking through these, uh, this rewiring of discipline, do you get pushback of like, it, it can feel like every kid gets a trophy of, uh, I've got to, you know, how I'm not really punishing them. What, where's the punishment or where's the, how, how do you help people out of that kind of uh, frame
1: of mind. Yeah well and so that's that's where this new lens of discipline, that's what this is about because it really is the core like the hub of discipline is co-regulation. So it's not that you're not it's not that you're not giving consequences, but it's that you're making sure that you're in a nervous system state that is calm and can reason and use logic and you' and so is the student when you wait for that, you know, when you have created that calm state of what we call state dependent functioning, um, and then we can listen, then we can receive, then we can make sustainable changes. Um, but it, you know, again, it's takes, I love what Bruce Perry says. He says it's, he calls it therapeutic dosing and we don't, You know, kids and human beings don't change from one hour of counseling every week. It's through these micro moments of connection that we begin to feel seen and heard and felt. And and that's what that's what discipline is really about. It's about sharing and modeling that calm so that students can begin to experience that themselves and they can begin then to um, explore um, a different way of, you know, going about
0: an experience, but you can't do that when you're in fight, flight, or shutdown. So tell me a little bit more about that micro moment of connection. Um, is there a defined, like, what, what is that definition really? Is it moment of time? Is it uh, a couple seconds? Is it a few minutes? Yeah. Does it really matter? Am I off track on that question? No,
1: no, it's a great, no, it can be, a, it can be two seconds. It can be two minutes. But it's really those, you know, we call those those spaghettio moments um, where you are just joining up with a child while they're having breakfast, while they're unpacking their backpack, you're sitting down, you know, you're, um, you know, just greeting them as they come into the classroom, how you leave them, how you transition with them. You know, it's really just um, those thousands of moments of check in. That we call touch points. And, um, you know, the like many of our kids come to school with so many touch points. And many of our children who are struggling, who have experienced chronic unpredictability and isolation, especially during the pandemic, didn't have those points of connection. And so many of our kids come to school for family privilege, they come to school for safety and for connection and for nurturing. So those touch points or what Dr. Perry calls therapeutic dosing, um, that could be, you know, we just, it happens in conversation. It happens in the way you look at a child. You know, it happens in how you stand by them. I have an image of Jason Smith. He's a former graduate student of mine from Marion University. I mean, he's a, I think he's a principal now. Um, and he sent me this photo, of him just, he's like a six foot eight guy. And he's just sitting in the hallway with this little guy who eloped out of the room. And he, Jason's just sitting there with his knees up. And this kid is sitting next to him. And they're both just on their phones. And, and it, it, he was waiting, you know, he was just sitting there and he was sharing his presence. They weren't talking. Um, there was no conversation they weren't looking at each other but this young man knew that Jason
0: was there for him I think that that example is really helpful because one of the things that I think could be overwhelming as you kind of analyze your practice if you're an educator diving into this work uh would be man I've got you know a high school classroom I've got 30 kids I think depending on what school you're at maybe 25 of them are really struggling with trauma um Mm-hmm. how do I give them the TLC, the connection that they need? And your point is of, there's a million ways to do it. And it could be proximity. You could, like you said, the power of the eyes. Again, that was in your I think, third book that you wrote. Uh, yeah. The power of like really connecting and showing people you love and you care them, you see them deeply, not just I'm looking at you. Yeah, um, That's powerful to know that it's through a lot of little things, just not through these like major Uh, one-on-one conversations well those are good I'm sure Uh, it sometimes it seems hard when you've got five classes of 30 kids or something
1: no and and so and I want to add to what you're saying you're absolutely right but it what people forget is that it's a tier one universal lens practice yep
0: Um,
1: this is what you know this is not we're not talking about just for these students or for this group that this discipline, and, and when we think about discipline, it's in your procedures. It's It sits inside of your routines and your transitions, and it's how you start the day. I have a science teacher. I'm so, I, I don't like the word proud of her. I'm so in awe of her. She's just, you know, she kind of looked like a deer in headlights this year at the beginning of the year, and she's taught every year in a pandemic. I mean, I can't, you know, can't even believe it, but anyway, she's, she's Really starting to feel this in her nervous system, and so in this is science. She starts class with Gray Gray's Anatomy, um, and these video clips, and then they they talk about you know what they notice. How you know what does anger look like in different people? You know, so it's you integrate this work through. Yesterday we drummed in Mr. Kyle um, Smythe's room at Belzer. And I brought in a drum, we listened to this really cool drumming video. We drummed and then everybody wrote a math problem with no answer to it. Just the problem that they had learned this semester. And then they wadded it up. They had no idea what I was telling them. They got to stand up and they got to toss it as far away from them as they could. And then on the count of five, they got to go grab one and they got to solve it. You know. And so it's simple. You know, a lot of teachers are a lot of educators do this intuitively, but what we're, we know the brain and nervous system love novelty. We love to anticipate, we predict experiences based upon experiences and rhythm and breath and movement and sensory experiences bring us to the cortex. And that's how we start the day and end the day in transition.
0: That's Awesome what i mean you're in the middle of writing so you may have writer's block today which is probably not something i'm supposed to mention to a uh, experienced writer like yourself but it, what is one thing that's on your mind or heart to share with educators right now of whether like when you're thinking you're listening right now i just want you to think about this either connecting with your students connecting with your own regulation or anything else that's on your heart right now
1: well i think so i want educators to to really understand that as challenging as this time is and as hard as it is, the behavioral challenges, the fatigue that we're all experiencing, that the human, the human nervous system is built to repair and to heal. And that happens through a well-researched concept called neuroplasticity. And there are a lot of definitions of neuroplasticity, but they all are about how experiences change the brain structurally and functionally in every moment. So we don't have to be who we were this morning. And that's what we tell our kids. I don't have to respond to a child the way I did this afternoon, tomorrow morning. And, and really that is something we can control. We cannot control the behaviors of others, and we get make ourselves sick trying to think of what strategy am I going to implement? How am I going to fix this? What am I going to do? And it, it what we have to focus on is our nervous system and the beautiful plasticity um, that helps us to reframe and to, um, you know, really be creative and to cultivate ways to connect with that child or adolescent
0: so usually i ask these next questions are just really quick and usually ask them in a different order but since you talked about the power of neuroplasticity, what who are some authors or what are some books or what are some sites that you send people to if they're trying to, if i'm trying to go explore this myself um yeah what should i be doing who should i be reading
1: There's so many, I'm looking at so many right now, but I love, well, first of all, I love Dr. Stephen Porges and Deb Dana's work um, on the polyvagal theory, because it's hopeful. That's post adversity growth. And that's what the new book is gonna be about. Um, I love Joe Dispenza's work, Dr. Joe Dispenza. Um, Andrew Huberman, um, he's got a great podcast. And oh my gosh, like every time I mention it, people, and it's good for high school kids and some middle school kids. His, his research is, um, he does a lot of research on um, vision and neuroplasticity and um, eye movement and neuroplasticity. I love, um, I'm trying to think who else I've been studying right now. Oh, Laura Boyd, Dr. Laura Boyd from UBC. Um, she's going to be a part of the research in my new book. I've been looking at Dr. Paul Conti's work. So... Um, I think of all of those, I mean, there's just neuroplasticity has gotten a bad rap because, you know, just like any science term, it can be overused and misunderstood. So I think get delving into the sciences of neuroplasticity, MIT has a great book that I'm using right now that really defines it through evolution. So, um, yeah, there's a lot lot out there.
0: What uh habits one of the things we're trying to learn from all the leaders coming on this is we believe habits and disciplines matter and so i'm curious to know what habits or disciplines you have in your life on a daily or weekly basis that you think help you be the best version of yourself
1: well so i'm not great at these but they're in my mind all the time and in fact i'm doing an eight to nine o'clock i'm teaching the polyvagal course tonight But, um, 20 minutes of yoga for me, um, is a game changer and sleeping is a game changer. And if I, if I leave anybody today with anything, you sleep is more important than anything you can put into your life. I, when you don't get those eight hours of sleep, you can't get that back. I mean, it is, it's that critical. So those are the things that I'm aware of. I'm not always great at it, um, but I'm aware of those. Yeah.
0: Um, so when you're, maybe this is not the best example, but yoga or on a walk or driving around town, uh, if you have a playlist, uh, what, what type of uh, artists or songs are on kind of your favorite playlist these days?
1: You know, I just, I'm such an oldie, like, but I love John Mellencamp's music. I just have always, so anything, I mean, I just love I love his music I listen my it's so funny because my undergrads before class I would always put his playlist on so um yeah probably he's my my favorite
0: that's that's uh not surprising given uh his attachment to uh Indiana yeah
1: (laughs) oh I also love I love John Mayer too he's another one of my favorites
0: yeah. I just was wondering if you're legally obligated to uh, have put out there as an Indiana resident to say John Cougar Mellencamp. Um, I know.
1: I know. And he just turned 70, I think, which is amazing.
0: So one thing I didn't share with you earlier is I first got to meet you briefly. Again, you may get a chance to really engage, but uh, we had you at a symposium in Indiana several years ago. And uh, we had a Really, how we ended up inviting you was uh, our educators who are across the state kept coming in touch with these really awesome leaders who kept saying your name as the person who is inspiring them the most, um, and that was all across the state. And I think one of the things that one you can just tell like, how thoughtful you are in the research. One another thing that came through an HD today on our call or our conversation is you have no problem. Uh, shouting out all the other folks that are in this work with you, all the other people who are doing research or doing really great work. So your humility uh, is something you ooze, which is really awesome, given how accomplished you are. Thank you. Thank um, you. And I, I think my heart is after this conversation, I'm really hoping that how people educators in Indiana feel about you who've gotten to work with you I'm really hoping that continues to catch fire across the country and it sounds like now that we're opening back up and maybe across the world for you because um you know I know you said at the beginning of this call you know where you started with this a lot of your research or thoughts may have felt like heresy Mm -hmm. now it seems like we're at a place where the game on switch is ready to go and people are leaning in and craving um what you and your colleagues and the other people you gave shout outs to are really trying to accomplish in education. So I just want to thank you for being you and continue to encourage you and others to, to dive into this work with you.
1: Thank you, Dustin. I, I mean, that means the world to me and um, yeah, we never get it done. You know, I mean, it's, we'll just keep going. And um, yeah, I really appreciate your affirming and validating words and um Yeah, there's just, there's a lot of room um, in our educational arena for us to not be so, so I love this term, um, neural rigid. Um, And that's where Joe Dispenza says, if by the time you're 35 years of age, if you're not intentional about really changing it up, um, you're going to live your life in sameness. And I want our five year olds to know that. I want our 10 year olds to know that, that, you know, this, they really can do what they, they want to do.
0: That's awesome. Well, uh, only thing I would ask is that I, again, my best friend works at your university. Um, like he said, I told you before we started recording, he is convinced you could be anywhere. And so he and so many people. Uh, any administration at Butler I think are so thankful that you choose to be with them. And so that's wow. pretty awesome. When I go back, I go back at least once a year during basketball season to catch a game with them. Uh, I would just love to get together when we, yeah, in Minneapolis. So yeah, I'll absolutely.
1: Well, yeah, reach out, reach out. I'm here.
0: Well, this was a blessing. Thank you for making time. Hopefully yeah. uh, you got your creative juices flowing so that when you get off with us, you can dive right back into your writing and get out some more, uh, of your amazing knowledge. So appreciate you so much.
1: Thank you, Destin. Thank
0: you. Have an awesome day. All right, you too. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcast on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful messy work of shaping human potential.